0: This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts.
1: Hi, I'm Christina. I'm from Prague. Hi, I'm Jen and I'm from Canada.
2: Hi, I'm Ola Banji and I'm from Nigeria.
1: Hello, I'm Liki and I live in Paris.
2: Hi,
0: I'm Brian and I'm from New York.
3: Welcome to Carbon Sessions a podcast with carbon conversations for every day, with everyone, from everywhere in the world. In our conversations, we share ideas, perspectives, questions, and things we can actually do to make a difference. So don't be shy and join our carbon sessions, because it's not too late.
0: Hi, this is Christina.
1: Hi, this is Liki. Hi, this is Jen, and we've got a wonderful guest with us today, Michelle Romero from dream.org. Welcome, Michelle. That's right, thank you so much for having me. Michelle, can you tell us a little bit about what dream.org is to start with?
2: Yeah, well, it's very exciting and um, we have a very ambitious mission. Uh, dream.org essentially dreams of a world beyond a world beyond poverty, beyond prison, beyond pollution. Um, And beyond polarization, so we really are uniting people from different sectors and from unlikely walks of life, right, to sort of come together and contribute to helping solve some of our toughest problems.
1: That's pretty amazing. And and so my question is, how did so many things come into one confluence?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I think that there are uh, traditional issues like mass incarceration that we think of as social justice issues um in the united states if you're not familiar the prison system is quite overrun and is disproportionately incarcerating black and brown folks and so it's a real issue here um and that's something that we've traditionally thought of as a social justice issue a uh, issue of unfairness a newer issue really is climate change i think climate change still in the last few years has become much more understood much more known for the like magnitude of the issue that it truly is Uh, but it's newer. And so how those issues affect communities of color is something that we try to bring forth. But also when you connect the issues of both pollution and prisons, the reason that we have a state where low-income communities, poor people and people of color are the communities that have the dirtiest sources of pollution, they're the communities that are most affected, you know, the, the places where pollution lives, so to speak, the places where we've cited. Some of the dirtiest sources of pollution. Um, and the and the way that in which we're able to just sort of lock folks up uh, is because we devalue certain people's lives. And so there's a connective tissue here in terms of this throwaway society that as we look about building a more sustainable economy, a more inclusive, regenerative economy, we also need to think about, well, what does that mean for society? What are the mental mind shifts um, that we
1: need to break free from in order to be a a sustainable society as well. Great. Thank you. And I have one more question, and then if somebody else wants to jump in, um, my question is, how did you personally become involved in this?
2: Yeah. Well, seven years ago, I had a friend who was leading um, Green for All, which is the initiative at dream.org that's working to build a more inclusive green economy, strong enough to lift people out of poverty. And she asked me to come and help her lead some of our national campaign work. And um, We'd worked together at a, another nonprofit. And I said to her, I said, well, look, I believe in you as a leader 100 percent, right? I am there to help you build what you envision. But I'm not sure about this environmental stuff. I think as a Latina who had been working on racial justice issues and issues of economic justice, I wasn't really too sure um, how inv- the environment and climate issues really affected our communities. Again, like I said, it's not one of those issues that we traditionally think of as a social justice issue. Um, and from the outside looking in, the movement was still very much, you know, advertised as about saving the whales and saving the polar bears and, um, you know, plastic pollution and things like that that weren't connecting to me on a tangible level in terms of what does this mean for our communities, right? What does this mean for our day to day lives? Um, and I will say that first month that I came and joined her, I took a chance and she sent me to Flint, Michigan. And Flint, Michigan at the time was going through uh, the Flint water crisis. And so this was an entire city who had been lead poisoned in their drinking water. They couldn't drink the water. Severe cognitive issues, developmental issues, right, were present in children. I mean, just uh, it was terrible. And I remember sitting there in rooms talking to mothers. And there was one in particular, her name was Denitra. And she had a three-year-old at the time. And she was describing how, you know, as a three-year-old, your pot- it's potty training age. And so you're teaching them to use the bathroom. And her son had a, an accident. And so she needed to wash him. And she very quickly thought she would just rinse him quickly in the tub, knowing they can't drink the water, of course. But lead doesn't really affect your skin or shouldn't. Um, And yet within seconds of her putting him in the tub to rinse him off, He was yelling, mommy, mommy, it's burning. And so when she pulls him out of the water, she sees that his skin is cracking and bleeding. So there was more still going on that wasn't fully, you know, being investigated and it wasn't addressed with any sort of swiftness by the government. And when you look at a community like Flint, Michigan, it was predominantly low income. It was uh, black and white poor people. And I just remember sitting there. My daughter was about the same age as her son at the time. And I remember sitting there just asking myself, how does this happen in the United States? This country that sort of upholds itself as a beacon of all freedom and opportunity and all of these things that we like to say and have people living like that. It had been over a year at that point that they were living like that. It's been much longer since, of course, right? Uh, but I just reflected and I remembered a moment that I hadn't given as much thought to at the time. And I was sitting back home um, in my home in California uh, not too far from Richmond, California. And I remember watching the news and the uh, TV reporters reporting that you should get inside your homes. If you live in Richmond, California, there had just been a Chevron oil refinery uh, explosion and the air outside was unsafe to breathe. So you should get inside. And that you should close your doors and windows. And more than that, you know, you should find towels, bedding, anything you could to sort of shove in the cracks. Well, I had a friend who lived in Richmond at the time. And this is before I'd ever gone to Flint, right? This is before I'd even worked on environmental issues or started to make these connections. But sitting there in Flint reminded me of that time. I called my friend and I said, Blanca, are you seeing what's happening on the news? Are you inside? Are you okay?" And she actually laughed at me. She laughed at me because she said, Michelle, I've grown up here my whole life, right? This happens every other year. There's something like this. There's an alarm system in the city that tells us when we've got to get inside. Now, at that time, that particular incident, I'm recalling, tens of thousands of people ended up in the hospital. Alarm system or not, Mm -hmm. right? But the idea that someone who'd grown up there had found it to be so normal, again to me just connected the Richmond Californias the Flint Michigans right the thing they had in common is these were poor communities and they had significant populations of either black or Latinx or immigrant you know communities and it was just how do we let that go on so long It's not in our neighborhood right as long as it's not us and so this othering that we do um, I think is is what has gotten us here with the climate crisis.
4: Mm. Yeah, I, I, I think the work you're doing is really important because uh, you are tackling a very important part of society, a part of it that's not very much addressing the climate and environmental work. And I didn't realize that until I listened to a podcast a couple of weeks ago. I'm from France, and so uh, we also have this problem of um, of polarization and the low-income communities issue. I was listening to a very bright young man, who's working with low-income communities and going to like, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the Beaulieu problem in France, that's like really low-income suburbs that have um, very high unemployment and um, high high pity crime, let's say, and, um, and the people living there are not involved in the climate conversation. But on the other hand, they're very much exposed because is, is in this area where they have no, like, not so many trees, no access to, like, because we keep saying that, oh, well, you should buy local, but no, they cannot buy local because nothing grows all around this area. Right. And um, and so the message of this very bright young man was, okay, this is your chance. I mean, not this is your chance, but you have to, you really have to understand the problem. And this is an empowerment tool for you to, uh, to be involved in society because the, a lot of things are going to change. And uh, this is your way of getting involved in building the new system. So my question to you is that because the, the young man was explaining things like, you know, well, the message that we hear in the mainstream media is like, oh, wow, what we could do is to switch to electric cars. But, you know, people are not even driving there. So I guess that you have the same kind of a approach with low income communities in the places you work so how do you address that absolutely absolutely you know local communities
2: need local solutions and not every community is the same right in terms of how they get around their city or how they um reach access to hospitals or to food or things like that so i think you know one of the unique opportunities that we have right now in the united states which is very exciting is that the federal government this past year authorized $369 billion for climate investment. And that was authorized as part of the Inflation Reduction Act. So there's now billions of dollars that are going to be allocated over the next several years. But, you know, history shows us that just because they've authorized the funding doesn't mean it actually reaches the people in places that need it the most. So one of the things that we are really focused on at Dream.org is making sure that the money does get to the people in places that need it the most. Um, we've been working with policymakers in the United States on how to design the programs and the criteria for applications that would compete for funding so that we're prioritizing the communities that we've under-invested in for so long that we're actually now proactively investing in them. Um, I'm actually very proud of our team, uh, you know, to share that, the Environmental Protection Agency adopted all of our recommendations recently um, when they put out the rules for this new greenhouse gas reduction fund. It's the first $20 billion, essentially, that's going to go out the door. Um, and so we're going to see now more of this money starting to benefit these communities. But what happens at the grassroots level, right? What happens at the yeah. community level um, when communities don't know how to position themselves to compete, how to access the money? So mm. we're also working at that level through our Transformative Communities program. That program is working uh, specifically with what we call you know, disadvantaged or underinvested in pollution-burdened communities and helping them identify projects that they want to see that meet the criteria for reducing greenhouse gas emissions and that could become competitive in this cycle so that we're starting to develop a, a pipeline of shovel-worthy projects that are ready then when that application opens to go after those funding. And it's, you know, involving community. It's engaging them and saying, what would you want to see here? Do you need more, you know, public transportation? Do you need affordable housing built near transit so that it's reducing the need for reliance on cars? You know, that's one of the things that is possible. And so anyway, it's very exciting because we have an opportunity really to do some transformative Hmm. things. I have been
0: thinking about when we were talking about Flint and uh, other specific uh, disasters, they have been going on, on decade, for decades and decades. And uh, I experienced, I'm from Czech Republic, and I experienced after 89, the pollution in the rivers, before 89, pollution was really bad. The fish were dying. It was... Basically, disaster, chemical disaster. And within a year or so, the rivers can be cleaned up. And I feel this is such a wonderful focus on these things to finally put money in it and clean up all these things we have been suffering with for decades. And uh, maybe that's one positive part of the climate change that (laughs) finally we're getting focused on something that is important. My question is, do you remember the time when you could specify the connection between the behavior of the big companies and all these things happening and the climate change and how you woven it into your job and your presentation?
2: I think that generally, you know, we see in the environmental movement these campaigns to sort of help people stop using single-use plastics, and it's really focused on sort of individual behavior. And of course, there's something everyone can do. And I think what you are getting at is important, which is to recognize that there's actually a smaller amount of uh, individuals or companies that actually contribute the greatest amount um, of the climate pollution. And so absolutely, I mean, that's what we advocate, right, to um, stop pollution. and to fund solution. Yeah. And some of that means, you know, making the polluters sort of pay that there is a social cost to allowing them to just sort of pollute the air, which is essentially a public good, right? It's a shared resource. That's brilliant. When you said
0: stop funding pollution. Yeah, I never thought it that way. Yeah, you're right.
2: We have been, we have been yeah, if if you were a small business, if you were a restaurant, you wouldn't. Oh, I don't know. Some places, I guess, you pay for trash, and some pe- places you don't. Where I live, you know, you pay to have your trash collected and picked up. And so, but if you're a restaurant, you're not just going to dump your trash on the street and think it's just going to live there, right? That that would come with some sort of fee for littering, or like it's just not acceptable. And yet, that's essentially what we've done to our air—that there hasn't been the regulations around our shared use of of the air um, that it's allowed that. But I think to be able to recapture some of the value, you know, that that actually has and to be able to use that to help fund the transition is, you know, a possible solution. So, yeah, I think how we hold these polluters accountable is important.
0: I I have another question. Have you guys been working with system practice? Uh, I'm not familiar with that. What do you mean? Systems practice. It's a system where they look at the whole, whole thing, uh, you mm. would, you, they would look at not only the local, main government, the pollution, but I, I was thinking that's such a helpful tool yeah. with this issue that it's huge, it's uh, and changing every day. Yeah. So. I thought of system practice as really yeah. good
2: fit. For- I mean, we do need systems level solutions, right? Interventions at every level. Yeah. Every level of government, but also in
4: industry.
0: And connecting all of them together. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Um, Michelle, I would like to go back to these low income grassroots communities. And I was wondering through the work, what was the biggest difficulty that you faced? Uh, your organization face when they go to the grassroots level? What was that? How does it happen? You know, What was the experience? Look, I mean, I think
2: the hardest thing is um, recognizing the magnitude of the problem mm. and wishing that you could just sort of wave a magic wand and, and have cleaner communities and have communities that have clean water again and that sort of thing. And it's just, unfortunately, when there's this much damage, it's not a quick fix. And I think that's hard to accept, right? We live, you know, especially just capitalism and consumerism has us having these quick transactional exchanges. And so we think, well, if we just, can we just pay for this or can we just do that? Can we just throw money at the problem? Does that fix it? And yeah. we need money, right? To help bring the solution. Um, But it, it is more complicated and it does take collaboration. Uh, it does take multiple, you know, sort of, players between, in, in cooperation, I would say, between government, between industry, between communities. Um, but that's also, I think, the exciting opportunity. You know, when I talked earlier about we have to heal society's sort of addiction to othering, um, the the divisiveness or the hate, the mm-hmm. things that make us feel comfortable pointing to someone who is different than us and saying, oh, well, that's not me or I don't identify. And so therefore, I don't have to care. I don't have to care about them. I don't have to have empathy, Right. It's an excuse that absolves us of some sort of responsibility. Um, with this kind of problem, like climate change, it doesn't allow for that. To have collaboration, you've got to get back in the game. You've got to empathize. You have to care about people who are different than you. Um, and I think especially in this climate crisis issue, uh, it's one thing when the dirtiest sources of pollution, right, the cancer, the asthma, all of that is sort of in these low-income communities and communities of color it's another when that pollution, right? The same climate pollution that's sort of filling up kids' lungs and causing asthma and cancer and those sorts of diseases are now affecting us at a global level, Mm. you know? And so we didn't care about it when it wasn't in our backyard. Well, now guess what? It's in all of our (laughs) backyard, but the problems become so big, right? It would have been much easier to control it before it had gotten out of control. And so that's only possible, I think, when we care when it's not in our backyard, too.
1: I resonate with that. I'm in Canada, and we have a number of First Nation communities that have for decades not had access to clean drinking water, which is absurd because we have some of the best drinking water in the world. So, you know, it's it's a similar thing. And what I'm noticing now is with all of the fires that we've got going on here is finally people are starting to consult with the First Nations people who have, you know, generations and generations of knowledge on how to deal with things like the environment, the earth, the water, the air, the fires, and are finally consulting to say, you know, what would you do? because clearly what we're doing is not working. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so finally, there's some consultation um, from the people who are the knowledge keepers, really. so I, I just kind of wonder if there's consultation if there's, yeah. you know, what what do the people who are the most affected? Do they have ideas and solutions that anyone's listening to? is my question.
2: Yeah, there's two things I want to say to that. One is that, you know, I mentioned when I first got into the environmental issues, I wasn't sure. Uh, you know, I, I struggled with the ident- identifying myself as an environmentalist because of how the movement was sort of branded, right? Um, and and the the concerns that I had, you know, being rooted maybe a little bit more in economic justice or racial justice. But when I think back to how I grew up, um, uh, my grandmother was my babysitter, right? I've spent most of my time, I would say, at her house, at grandma's house. And um, I'm half Mexican and half white. So this is on my dad's side, my Mexican Abuelita. Okay. This was a woman who saved everything. And w- you might have stories of that too, right? A lot of a different generation, a different or different cultures that learned to value things. And so butter containers, you ran out of butter. That was a salsa jar, right? Today, we have these bans against plastic uh, bags at the grocery store. We don't have that anymore. And I remember the first thing thinking, oh, what are we going to use? Then when we're making our tortillas, we used to just use that to sort of separate so they didn't stick. Um, You know, and we in our house found ways to recycle and reuse. And but I didn't think of that as environmentalism. My dad, my grandpa, all of my uncles worked at the garbage company. I was recycling from the time I was a toddler. Right. I didn't think about it as environmentalism. In fact, we actually had more consciousness around the workers that received the garbage. Right. And how you were sort of paying attention to that this goes somewhere right? And someone is dealing with this. And so being kind, being respectful. Um, but when you fast forward now, you know, we think about solutions to these issues. I've talked a lot and I feel like the, a lot of the conversation in general around communities of color and low-income communities is centered on how they're disproportionately affected, how they're more polluted, how they uh, have less resources, less access to the solutions and that sort of thing. But they really are, as you mentioned, Jen, like. They are also solutionaries. They are also people who have a ton of knowledge and wisdom before we've rebranded some of this as now being <laughs> environmentally trendy. There are some cultures that have been practicing these things for, for many, many years. And I will say there's a lot of genius and talent in these same communities. And so, again, we, if we can get out of that sort of mentality that people who are different than us means that they're less valuable, less smart, less brilliant, right? It's not just that they're different, it's that they're less. I think that that's how we've sort of translated that. Uh, Then maybe we would unlock the full potential of human ingenuity on the problem. There's a lot of folks who've got incredible, you know, solar companies. And I get to work with a lot of black and brown CEOs of climate tech startups. Um, And just to hear how they started their companies, I mean, we'll tell you that lived experience matters. You just think about the problem differently. And we need everybody's, you know, creativity on this.
1: Right. And we need to not have environmentalism be a, you know, white savior (laughs) movement. (laughs) Yeah. I agree with you
4: because because I think the environmentalism is like reinventing the will sometimes because things have been done for ages. I want to again go back to the you know, the success stories you mentioned the uh, you know, CEOs of colors and because uh, I obviously your organization helped, oh, I shouldn't say people become leaders because you see the potential so you you help them become leaders. I'd like to ask you if you uh, can share some success stories and also your workers through how was the process or your know, how how you help them become the people that are yeah. you know, that are doing things differently and leading. A year or two
2: ago, um, after the government had authorized all of this funding, we said, okay, well, we want it to go not just to the communities who need it the most, but we also want to make sure that the contracts, the business opportunities are also going to um, innovators and entrepreneurs of color, right? Folks who are often overlooked as the solution makers. And so Um, I was able to reach out and connect and build relationships with a lot of brilliant CEOs of various climate solutions and climate companies. One of them um, I would love to share just sort of when I say lived experience matters, this is what I mean, right? (laughs) Uh, His name is Reginald Parker. He's the CEO of Optimal Technology Corporation. He's got all sorts of different technologies that they've brought uh, to market. But one of them is actually the most efficient solar panel on the market. Uh, It's the most efficient, right? And so it captures more, it harnesses more of the sun's energy uh, and making it quite valuable. How did he come up with this technology, right? Uh, Many, many, many years after many, many solar companies had already been doing solar. Mm -hmm. Well, he was a high school student before he was an entrepreneur, before he'd even gone to college. He was a high school student. And as a black man, he had his uh, photo Taken for the yearbook, like every other student. But again, as a black man, um, not every photographer knows how to capture the features and the undertones in the face of a black person, especially a darker skinned black person. And so his yearbook photo came back, uh, you know, like one dark blob. he, he really couldn't <laughs> recognize him. It didn't feel like him. And so he said, I'm not having that in my yearbook. <laughs> and uh, he went home and he worked with his uncle to sort of set up lighting and, uh, you know, set, set up at home to take it, to retake his yearbook photo so he could submit something different. And sure enough, his uncle takes his photo and it is a photo of him, a proper photo. You can see his face, right? Everything looks good. And he asked his uncle, wait, I don't get it. You know, he says at school, we had all the lighting. We had the professional camera equipment and the company that comes in to take the photos. He says, we did all that at home. How can these two photos be so different? His uncle was explaining to him that the way that you can split UV light, you know, and bounce it, bounce the light differently, helps you to capture different sorts of tones, different sorts of um, layers and stuff to a photograph. And so he remembered that, right, took that piece of knowledge, pocketed it, didn't think about it for a while, went to school, right, became a, a chemist, mm. a chemical engineer, and ended up working in the solar industry, actually helping to install solar initially. Mm. And um he realized in working in solar that, oh, my gosh, these solar panels were so inefficient at the time. They were like 17 percent efficiency. He's like, we're barely capturing a fifth of the, <laughs> of the potential. Right. He thought there's got to be a better way. And so he went to work on that problem. And it was lessons like uh, the one from his high school yearbook photo that actually gave him a different way of approaching the problem and led to an ultimately different technology solution for how we capture the suns. Uh, energy and so he's got you know it's more efficient by far and folks would say well he's outsourcing it how's he making it right (laughs) it must be really expensive nope he produces them in the united states they're local jobs right and um they're cheaper yeah they're actually cheaper and so um it's things like that you know i think that uh can sometimes be overlooked but one of the things that we're doing at dream.org is that we find that there's brilliance like that Mm. right or often they're not. There's unoverlooked. Uh, you look under a rock, under a corner. You're gonna find brilliance like that. Yeah. But our venture capitalists, our financiers, right, are not necessarily funding these solutions. When you think about that, most venture capitalists are are not diverse. Yeah. Their social networks are limited. Yeah. Right. How they have access to finding that brilliance is just limited with their set, this the sort of same outreach set, and so um. We have partnered with Village Capital, which is another nonprofit organization uh, based out of New York, and we are running a launchpad program specifically for Black and Latinx uh, entrepreneurs and innovators. We're providing them intensive investor readiness training Mm -hmm. so that they know how to pitch their companies, how to speak the speak, right, when they go and present their companies. Because the solutions are brilliant, Mm -hmm. but there's a gap between how one world talks and operates and and how the other has access. And so um, being able to get them in front of, uh, through a demo day, culminating event at the end of this is going to be in October uh, in San Francisco. Uh, We're going to have a demo day out at uh, Green Biz's Verge event, and we're going to actually allow them to present their companies in front of investors and try to get more support behind these uh, innovations.
4: That's brilliant. Just give me a brilliant idea. Yeah, because I was thinking, because I, I was thinking about this young bright man, and and I was thinking how I can help them. And my field is uh, entrepreneurship, and I help I'll help students and young entrepreneurs build all the financials and do pitches. So here we are.
2: Nice,
1: here we are. Yep. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I see a launchpad in your future. Uh-huh. Can I ask how the the prisons fit in to everything that you're doing?
2: You know, um, our founder uh, back in 2007, when they first founded the organization, um, he was working as a criminal justice organizer, and he was working to get people out of prison. And he was actually pretty successful. They had just helped to stop a super jail from coming to our local county. Uh, But he was realizing that, you know, all of this effort, when you're an advocate, when you're really fighting for creating a better world, these are hard problems. You don't see the change overnight. And so when you have those moments of success, you have those moments of progress, you ask yourself, is it enough? And I think that's what he did. And he um, basically asked himself in reflecting, he says, if all that I'm doing is helping to get people out of prison, helping to give them a second chance, that's essentially returning them, though, to the same communities that they came from. So unless we're changing the conditions of those communities, unless we're creating pathways out of poverty pathways you know alternatives to violence right pathways into new opportunity um it's not enough it's it's a half solution and so uh, that's where the work that we do to build an inclusive green economy comes in um that's where all of this climate investment if we invest it in these communities that need economic opportunity they need local jobs right and we know that all of those investments require skilled work like we actually have a, sh- a labor shortage of skilled workers to to do this transition so if we can take people who most need work coming out of prison for instance and put them to work doing the jobs that most need done we can begin to solve poverty and pollution at the same time
4: yeah that was um when i moved in a new house it was over 20 years ago before long before we talk about um uh, you know, uh, recycling and repairing stuff because I was young at that time, so I didn't have a lot of money. And I equipped my first apartment in Paris with second um, secondhand, like, fridge washing machine uh, that were mm-hmm. repaired by people getting out of prison. And we were already doing it tw- over 20 years ago. So, yeah, nothing new.
2: Yeah, yeah, nice. I know some companies to start as a for-profit company specifically to employ. Yeah um folks coming home from prison too yeah there's some great companies doing that kind of work but yeah exactly battery recycling bread making i mean there was there's so many um and these are exactly the kinds of things that we need we just need pathways uh, and to get rid of some of the unnecessary barriers i think some jobs require or or exclude uh folks with a prison record from having certain jobs now in some cases the specific you know crime may make sense. Mm. Um, But a a lot of times we just use it as a blanket, you know, right? To say, if you have a record and you're disqualified.
4: You mentioned you have a three-year-old a couple of years ago. So what's the um, dream for your three-year-old? Yeah. When she would be your age?
2: Oh, (laughs) look, I mean, my dream is that she doesn't have to go through the disasters that are predicted, right? Um, My daughter's eight now and she's already been through a pandemic. Oh, yeah. Which I promised her, right? She was in kindergarten at the time and I remember telling her, I promise this isn't going to be your whole life. It will get better. And it was almost as quick as the words came out of my mouth, I thought to myself, oh my God, you might be a liar. And that is really scary, Mm. right? That's really scary to think about. So not to catastrophize the situation, but I think my dream for her is to not, you know, live with the anxiety um, that things like a pandemic or her spending a good portion of the fall season indoors because we have wildfires here Mm. um, in California, uh, you know, that she can just be a kid, that she can just pursue her dreams. I remember when I was a kid thinking, if I had a million dollars, what would I do with it? Now, a million doesn't sound like that much anymore, (laughs) but if I had a million dollars, what would I do with it? And uh, I just think growing up, I didn't worry about the climate crisis, mm. right? I dreamed up the biggest mansion I could imagine. Yeah. That's what we're <laughs> all the to spend the money on. Um, I right. asked my daughter this because we do this these journaling activities. And one of the prompts was essentially that, what would you do if you had a million dollars? And she turns to me and she says, I would give it all to dream.org so that oh. you can fix the environment.
3: <laughs> and oh. I thought...
2: <laughs> know, you're eight on the one hand with a generous heart, and on the other, is it because they worry? Yeah. You know, it's like yeah,
1: yeah. I was talking to a a person who's in charge in, in the organization I work for. She's in charge of what's called the first third ministry, which is everybody uh, in the first third of life. And she was saying that Generation Z, Generation Z is uh, has feels the most hopeless out of all of the generations uh, because of everything they're facing and that there's a very strong desire for mental health and mental wellness because of all the anxiety and stress that they're under 100%. which was
4: hmm.
1: really hard to hear and at the same time completely <laughs> understandable because as you say, they're living into this. Yeah. Um, This world we we've uh, got for them. And um, that's a really that's a really tough thing.
2: It is tough, you know, and. um, It's real, but I think to just leave on a on a hopeful note, there really is something everyone can do. And I think Mm -hmm. that this is, you know, regardless of the social issue or social problem that you're the most passionate about, climate change, mass incarceration, right, any sort of social justice. I think some people feel like they have to quit their day jobs in order to make change. And I actually think we need people exactly where they're at mm. and we need them to learn how to use the power and the position, the platforms, the the relationships, the resources that they do have to make a difference. Um, whether you're in banking or finance, right? Find out what programs do you offer small businesses, you know, to support more entrepreneurs of color. If you worked at an, at a company Maybe you work at an entertainment company or you work at a technology company or what have you, um, and they have a big sustainability initiative because a lot of these companies have made commitments to reduce their carbon emissions. Ask them who they're purchasing from for these solutions. Who are they buying their solar from, right? Where are they getting their electric fleet? Uh, Those are ways that people can make purchasing decisions that support more economic equity uh, when you have supplier diversity. Um, if you're at a school, right. Thinking about how to incorporate friend, you know, kid friendly. yeah, don't freak the kids out more, but you know, kid friendly, sort of empowering activities that give them a sense of empowerment around, um, what they can do to take action. I think sometimes the hopelessness comes from feeling like there's nothing we can do.
4: Yeah,
2: You know, mm-hmm. we all just need to do what we can do.
1: Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Thank you. I love the empowerment of kids.
1: Mm-hmm. I was going to say thanks for this conversation, Michelle. It's been great. Lots of uh, nuggets to take away.
2: Yeah, thank you. Yes. Thank, thank you. Wonderful. Thank you.
3: You've been listening to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day, with everyone from everywhere in the world. We'd love you to join the Carbon Sessions so you too can share your perspectives from wherever you are. This is a great way for our community to learn from your ideas and experiences, connect and take action. If you want to add your voice to the conversation, go to thecarbonalmanac.org slash podcasts and sign up to be part of a future episode. This podcast is also part of the Carbon Almanac Network. For more information, to sign up for the emails, to join the movement and to order your copy of the Carbon Almanac go to thecarbonalmanac.org. Be sure to subscribe and join us here again as together we can change the world.